Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there's a small cabinet shuffle this morning in Ottawa. What are the results? For the second time in less than a year, the Canadian government is invoking a 1977 treaty that will force the American government to negotiate over the fate of Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business, will join us to talk about that. And how can we start addressing the changing athlete abuse in Canadian sports? Fascinating op-ed piece about this today, and we're going to delve into that for you. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, swing back and talk about the, the political climate right now here uh, in Ontario specifically. We're going to get to in a couple of seconds, but more importantly, we find there's going to be a minor cabinet shuffle. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will swap two ministers, we're told, in a mini shuffle later on this morning. Emily Joveski has details. Justin Trudeau is expected at Rideau Hall this morning for a swearing-in ceremony with Governor General Mary Simon. Four sources with knowledge of the plan tell the Canadian press the shuffle is coming at the request of Procurement Minister Philomena Tassi. They say the Hamilton, Ontario MP asked Trudeau for a lighter workload because of a family health matter. The shuffle comes one week before a cabinet retreat in Vancouver and one month before the House of Commons resumes sitting following the summer break. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So we'll talk about the implications of that. Uh, I also want to swing around to the Prime Minister's meeting with uh, Doug Ford yesterday too. Uh, to uh, carry on both, uh, let's talk with uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad, of course, is a senior consultant with Crestwood Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the cabinet shuffle. It's a mini shuffle. We're told maybe only two ministers are going to be involved in this. Uh, and uh, we're not getting a whole lot of details that, uh, and, and of course, for Philomena Tassi, uh, the MP for uh, Hamilton, uh, West Ancaster and Dundas, uh, we're not sure if it's her or if it's a family member, whatever the case might be. But what kind of an impact does something like this have on the cabinet at a very, let's face it, very tenuous time for the, you know, the government and, and some of the policies going forward? Look, I think uh, a cabinet shuffle is, is sort of par, par for the course in any government. Uh, prime ministers and premiers make these decisions for a variety of reasons, whether to uh, refresh fresh the bench to, to put new people in, get some fresh blood in, or to make certain changes because of circumstances beyond anyone's prediction. And in this situation, it's unfortunate to hear that there is a, a personal health-related matter for, for Minister Tassi, so I hope everything is all right with, with her and her family. But, uh, you know, it, it really depends on what the context is, right? If, if the context is we need to do a whole shuffle, everyone needs to move around because the government is uh, is faltering in terms of its message and issues management, uh, that sends a different signal to, to everyone. But in this situation... Given that it's so small and is done at the request of a minister because of a, a personal uh, personal matter that they're they're asking to take a, st- a little bit of a step back, um, not away from cabinet. Because I think that's still important for like for, for places like the city of Hamilton to still have a very strong voice in cabinet. And and I think this is also just uh, indicative that she is not going to uh, she's not being moved because of of poor quality of work. She's moving because it's, uh, she's doing it for her family at this point, right? For a personal reason. So mm-hmm. I don't, the, the dynamics should not uh, alter significantly. It shouldn't, it really would just be, you know, the cabinet minister should probably huddle up more in, in a camaraderie kind of a dynamic saying, Hey, we're here to help. And we're one big family. 
Uh, we, the term is cabinet shuffle. I mean, but that's what we use anytime there's going to be any changes in cabinet. Uh, but, you know, by definition, that kind of means, okay, they're just going to work with the existing cabinet members. Any possibility a new face might be introduced here? There's always a possibility. You know, the leaks will always uh, cover specific names uh, just to kind of gravitate, you know, the news coverage. I, I, it's it's going to be, it is going to be small. There is a possibility a new addition is made. You know, there's always a, an eye towards the infrastructure portfolio because right now Minister Le, Dominic LeBlanc is doing double duty, both as the intergovernmental affairs minister and the infrastructure minister. Uh, it's it's a heavy heavy double duty there, and and uh, if there's going to be an addition to help alleviate some, you know, to do more, it it would likely be that portfolio. And um, you know, you can look around the country of where. The prime minister would be keen to increase representation. One would be uh, there's a, a liberal MP in Calgary. That's always a consideration. Southwestern Ontario is another, uh, or add another in, in the Atlantic provinces, such as Nova Scotia, um, to to add a little bit more uh, bench strength. So what's what's the run up time? There's, they'll be sworn in later on today, as we mentioned at Rideau Hall. Uh, there's a cabinet uh, getaway uh, next week, I guess, after the Labor Day weekend. Uh, and they, uh, I guess about a month from now is when they finally get back to work in the Commons. Is that enough uh, lead time for a new minister or even an existing minister to uh, to get up to speed on this portfolio? Yeah, you know, it, look, I think more time is always great for any minister, but uh, it's, you know, the way it, o- it operates, uh, bureaucrats, the officials uh, are always preparing and have a briefing binder. They're already have started doing that. The prime minister's office will have a briefing binders uh, prepared so the minister can get a bit of a crash course right away, but then also get their briefings over a set number of days and over a couple of weeks. So uh, the, the, the challenge that are usually early on is just staffing. So uh, in some, most instances, the, the staff may mostly stay or just shift along wherever the, their minister is because they have a close relationship with the minister uh, so you know, a, a few weeks is not it's not too bad. And given the portfolio um, for Minister Tassi, who may take a more smaller role, the the learning curve won't be as big. But whoever takes in the procurement slot will have a bit more to to take on. Uh, but there are a number of pieces that are already like in play. And so for the procurement minister, whomever that becomes. Um, they're they're going to be guided by the deputy minister, their senior officials. Uh, there's going to be you know collaboration with other ministers that work on procurement files, such as national defense, as an example, uh, that will help sort of coach a new minister into place. So they're ready to go uh, once they're back in back in session on September nineteenth. Well, as uh, we just mentioned, uh, the announcement coming up in just a little while from Rideau Hall, we'll certainly uh, pass that on as soon as we get that information for you. Let's just uh, swing back, if we could, to Queen's Park yesterday, Mohammed. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, first time, I guess, in a few years now, actually visited Queen's Park with a, a one-hour sit-down with Premier Doug Ford. We're told this was at the Prime Minister's request. I'm assuming that's because he knew he was going to be in the area anyway. Uh it seemed pretty congenial, not just the photo op, but the comments from the Premier and the Prime Minister uh, right after that. And uh, they talked about health care and a number of other issues right now. Uh, how important is it for have for the Prime Minister and, and any Premier, but especially here in Ontario, to have one of those face-to-face meetings every now and then? Very important to be very... The short answer is very important. And the Prime Minister 
has a number of federal prior federal provincial priorities uh and doug ford has been a good productive ally in the sense of getting things done at that level and having just frank conversation between the two of them that is uh, this this meeting especially if it's at the request of the prime minister is a signal that there are a couple of pieces they need to get through one is the dental care program the other is kind uh, of health transfer pieces so those are two core areas that the government needs to move forward on and Doug Ford is going to be uh, relied on and, and because he has sort of taken the mantle of sort of a ringleader amongst conservative politicians, premiers across the country and with uh, Premier John Horgan, the BC Premier, um, you know, stepping away and who has been sort of the, the vocal voice and uh, ally with, with the Prime Minister, a number of policy areas, uh, Doug Ford is, is looking to kind of make uh, his place there or to sort of take that place right now um, as a means to kind of build the bridges and get things done as sort of his priorities uh, on the on the healthcare file and even immigration as well as a big one. So it's, it's positive to see that the relationship still is friendly and productive. Yeah, the immigration file is rather interesting uh, because they, there's a, a, an agreement, of course, about quotas per province with the, the number of new people allowed in. And uh, the premier said he, and he's mentioned this a number of different times in the past. He wants that increase. I mean, the, he wants people to come in here, uh, but that's going to obviously have an impact on the housing crisis that we're already facing right now. So they, they had a lot on their plates in a one-hour session. Yeah, and and look, these meetings they come in uh, not to you know really start and hash on new things. These are all put in put in motion by the staff and. An officials level leading up to it so it's very like to the point conversations and you know it's not like the, this is the only time the prime minister will speak but this is an opportunity you know in, in that kind of person to person dialogue just has a different value and uh quality that you just don't get over a phone call and so the pleasantries that you can to pull out and the body language and seeing where each leader is at uh, they're looking sp- at very targeted conversations uh, that would have already been put on the agenda long before. So the, I, from what it sounds like, it was a productive conversation. And given that Premier Ford just recently was doing his Atlantic tour and met with uh, the federal minister, uh, Dom Poblan, as the aforementioned, um, on the immigration file and on health care, these were all foundations laid out leading into this meeting with the prime minister um, about what the priorities are for Ontario and what are the priorities for some of the other provinces that Ontario is closely speaking with. Do you get a chance in a meeting like this, though, Mohammed, to actually drill down to some of these issues? I mean, we, you can talk about them, you know, on a, on a policy level, but uh, a source close to, to the Premier's office yesterday uh, said they did not discuss the Canada Health Act. Uh, and then that's maybe not surprising because it sounded like the Premier and the Prime Minister wanted to keep this on a congenial level, but uh, there's a lot of concern that Bill C-7, the, the, you know, with the idea of, of, you know, charging people for staying in hospitals if they've been just charged and won't leave, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of bringing private health care into the system as well. Uh, some are suggesting that contravenes the Canada Health Act. Maybe they didn't talk about it yesterday, but it's a discussion they're going to have to have somewhere down the road, isn't it? They are, and 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 you can have productive conversations in this. Uh, they may not go on every topic, there would be a, a piece that they could gravitate towards. And, and it really is who's driving the, the ask. In this situation, uh, the Prime Minister is questioning because he wants to also 
show leadership on key files, such as the healthcare piece. And while they may not talk about the Canada Health Act right now, uh, which is probably a bit too premature in terms of is there going to be a challenge to it, and 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 that's when you sort of bring in the lawyers and everything into that. But on just the the pieces around what they need for uh, Canada Health transfer discussions and what is a position of of Ontario and what is position of the federal government to continue drilling down on it, but also to talk about what's the plan of attack to help get everyone else on board, because it's not just Ontario, right? It's like I mentioned, Ford is sort of speaking uh, in unison with other premiers that he's um, spoken uh, at length with on some of the priorities around health transfers and immigration and other pieces. Uh, That is the type of in-depth conversation that they're looking to have is saying, can we just move past this hurdle? Can we uh, okay this piece? Like they're going to just get really into the personal, you're going to pull on like some of your the history that they have had in terms of getting big things done. That's a type of nitty gritty, as I have to say, um, uh, discussions that can take place. And it's it really comes down to the personality and, and both of them have worked well together. So it's not like cold, fresh face, haven't talked to each other before type of situation. This is a, a very mature relationship. And so it helps both the Prime Minister and Premier to get really into it. And, and the Premier, I guess, kind of deferred to that, didn't he, in his, his post-meeting comments uh, to the press when he said, uh, you know, we didn't get into that. He says, I'm only one guy. In other words, I, I, he was inferring that, look, at that part of the debate about the Canada Health Act, that we should all be in the room for that, not just one province. And, and I, he's, I think he's got a valid point. Yeah, and look, uh, you're... Uh, Premier of Nova Scotia and Premier of New Brunswick both have flirted with the, the commentary around it, but um, some have sort of back, you know, backstepped a little bit here about what does that mean. Uh, and the Premier himself has sort of come under a little bit of heat as well. What does he actually mean by private delivery? Is it actual privatization or is it just simply contracting something out to a private sector company, right? The, the the it's it's still so fluid and I think this is part of the the challenge with around this is the provinces so far have not demonstrated any sort of clarity of what exactly that is and that's where the prime minister just kind of was able to just well, well wanted to have just a very frank conversation like it's like Doug what's going on what can we do how can we move this forward I don't want to get into a big fight about something else because we can't waste time. I think the Premier Ford would agree with that, that we just can't waste time on, particularly around the healthcare piece. Well, it sounded like a productive meeting, and uh, we'll see what comes of it in the uh, weeks ahead, I'm sure. Mohammed, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview Strategies, with his comments about uh, the imminent cabinet shuffle, which is going to be announced uh, in just a little while. And, of course, the meeting between the Premier and the Prime Minister yesterday afternoon at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ottawa is uh, invoking a 1977 treaty with the United States for a second time involving the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline. Global's Jeff Smith has some details for us. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says Canada has serious concerns about Line 5 possibly being shut down on the Bad River Band Reservation in northern Wisconsin. She says such a shutdown would cause widespread economic and energy disruption in both Canada and the U.S., and have a domino effect on thousands of Canadian jobs and on communities on both sides of the border, impacting gas and propane prices. The 1977 Transit Pipelines Treaty has a dispute provision that requires the two countries to negotiate 
and if that fails, to send the dispute to arbitration. Canada has already invoked the provision in a dispute with Michigan over the pipeline's passage through the Straits of Mackinac. Jolie says Canada does support Enbridge's proposal to relocate the disputed Wisconsin segment around the Bad River Band Reservation. She adds Canada respects the rights and interests of Indigenous peoples. Jeff Smith, Global News. Interesting uh, to uh, reference uh, the economic impact that this would have. Uh, and, and if this sounds like you've heard all this before, it's probably the same kind of argument uh, that we're going to hear when they invoked it to do with the extension through to Michigan as well. Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, uh, it seems uh, that one way or another, the Canadian government is hell-bent on making sure that this pipeline gets completed. I would agree with that, Bill. Uh, now, if you don't mind, I'd just like to go back to 1977, if I can. Uh, this is a treaty that was signed uh, in March of 1977 between newly elected President Jimmy Carter and then Prime Minister of Canada, wait for it, Pierre Trudeau. Heard of him. Uh, sat for 45 years, 45 years, and was never really invoked. Now, what's in this treaty? The concern in 1977 was the transportation of any kind of a hydrocarbon, so that could be natural gas, oil, even gasoline. Remember, the United States and Canada had gone through a difficult time in the early 70s with gasoline shutdowns and rationing, what have you. So basically what it said is that the agreement was they would take power away, power away from provinces or states, and so that no province, no state could interrupt the operation of a pipeline that if there was a problem with the pipeline, it had to be settled at the national or federal level between us. Forty-five years go by, and it had never been used. It had never been invoked once on either side. And then, as you correctly pointed out, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer was concerned about Line 5. Line 5 runs through Canada until you get to roughly Sault Ste. Marie, uh, and then it dips down into Michigan, uh, goes through Michigan and then crosses back over at Sarnia. Gretchen Whitmer was concerned about the Sault Ste. Marie crossing. What if a boat's anchor severed the pipeline? Think of the damage it would do. Therefore, I want to shut it down, even though the pipeline brought oil to uh, refineries in Michigan. Also turns out that while it runs primarily through Canada, it does dip down and runs through a little bit of Wisconsin, so now we had a situation not by the state government in Wisconsin, but by a First Nations group in Wisconsin who wanted to go to Wisconsin court to again talk about shutting it down or rerouting it, what have you. And both times we've said, wait a minute, this is not a Michigan issue. It's not a Wisconsin issue. If there are problems, it has to be sorted out at the national level. But even with the, the intervention, I guess, if you want to use that phrase, with the indigenous band from Wisconsin, uh, Enbridge has already said, well, we, we'll go around that. I mean, the, the, in other words, they already have a plan for that. So uh, is, is this re really a moot point, or is this going to be a contentious issue like Michigan was? Well, I think <laughs> whenever you deal with pipelines today in 2022 and, and in the environment around climate change, anything to do with a pipeline is always going to be contentious and add in the First Nations element. Now, you're absolutely right. Uh, Enbridge, in the case of the uh, issue with Michigan, said, we, we've already got a plan to deal with this concern, Gretchen. What we're going to do is we're going to build a protective cover over the pipeline to make sure that even if an anchor were to hit it, it'll hit the protective cover and it won't damage the, the, um, the pipeline itself. Basically, Gretchen Whitmer said, not good enough or not fast enough. That was the essence of her dispute. In the case of Wisconsin, 
the again, the band council says, well, great that you want to reroute it, and we're thrilled you want to do it, but do it tomorrow. Can you get it done tomorrow? And they said, well, no, the plan is to do it over the next number of years. And, of course, then the answer is not fast enough. Let's shut it down until you do reroute it. Both cases, I think the point is moot. Um, certainly the climate between Ottawa and Washington is much better on these issues. Everyone is much more sensitive to the fact that this pipeline does not just bring oil into Canada, but it also fuels uh, refineries in the United States. And everyone wants to be energy self-sufficient. So I think the invoking of this is the right thing to do. But to your point, you know, in both cases, the right thing was going to be done. It was just a question more of timing. Are you surprised at, at, at how aggressive the Canadian government is in, in this situation? Uh, I mean, you know, let's face it, the accusations from the other side of the, of the fence here is that, well, these guys are soft on pipelines. They don't get this stuff done. Uh, but they've been pretty aggressive. And, and uh, whoever it was that dug up this 1977 treaty, I'm sure got a nice little bonus and say, way to go. Because uh, they, they seem, you know, steadfast that they're going to do this. I mean, the comments from Minister Jolie yesterday uh, were pretty sincere about this. You know, when, at the time when global inflation is making it hard on families, uh, we can't let this happen the way these people want it to happen. So they're, they're digging their heels in. Yeah. So, Bill, the, uh, the this is a funny thing, and I hope I don't shock you when I say this to you. I think this is a legacy of the Trump presidency. When Donald Trump became president, uh, for lack of a better term, he was a bit of a bully on the world stage. I'm going to put American interests first, always ahead of everybody else, and I'm going to get what I want, and I don't care what you want. And the only way to succeed against the bully was to stand toe-to-toe with them. We witnessed that, for instance, as Canada renegotiated the NAFTA treaty in, in a new memoir uh, Trump's son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, actually has no kind words for Christia Freeland, that she wasn't giving the United States any of the things that they wanted. I think you and I would cheer when we heard that. But mm-hmm. as a result, where Canada more, normally had a more cordial relationship with the United States, the lesson from the Trump years was that we really had to be strong and assertive on that stage to guarantee that we got our interests sorted out. Now, Biden is a much friendlier president, but nonetheless... In the early parts of his presidency, he has said certain things that, again, were similar to Donald Trump. You might remember on the electric vehicles that he wasn't going to subsidize any electric vehicle purchases if it had sort of uh, not American content in its assembly. And we went, whoa, wait a minute. Remember NAFTA? Remember all this? Now, again, we won, but the lesson was we had to be assertive. And I think in the case of our foreign minister, Madame Jolie, she, she just is realizing that that strategy seems to be working today. So let's keep going down that road. Well, and especially because, uh, as you say, one of the first things Biden did when he took office was shut down the pipeline that Trump had already okayed. I mean, that's been going you know, back and forth like a tennis ball over the last number of years. Uh, but they've been strangely silent on this issue. Uh, I, I, I don't know if they're just going to let this thing roll out and see what the courts say or what, but they, they haven't really come to Governor Whitmer's defense. Correct, correct. So uh, first, uh, again, for your listeners, just so they're clear, the pipeline you're talking about is the Keystone XL yeah. that had, had been uh, shot down by Obama, approved by Trump, and then Biden shot it down again. That's that tennis ball you're talking about. Um, so on one hand, Biden is very keen to be a green president, much like our Prime Minister Trudeau is keen to be a green Prime Minister. Um, and yet I don't think they see Line 5 as critical to a green strategy. It's an existing pipeline it meets its needs. It's not something new. It's not going through new territories. 
And in fact, like any pipeline that's been around for the better part of 50 years, it needs to be upgraded and updated to make sure that uh, newer technology keeps it operating efficiently. So I don't think they had a lot of sympathy for either argument, and they again understand the economics of it, especially today that we're still paying roughly 20 to 25 cents a liter more for gasoline than we were a year ago. Anything that might disrupt that and cause those prices to go back up is not good. And, and certainly Biden today is facing what we call the midterm elections in the United States. His job is secure, but the job of one third of the senators and all of the House of Representatives is up for grabs. And if the electorate are upset, oil prices are too high, gasoline prices are too high, you might not get reelected. So I think this is a very practical thing on Washington's standpoint. I think they have sympathy for Ottawa's position. And anything that might upset this oil and gas industry today, probably not a great thing for them. So they don't uh, side with the, the state as much as they are the federal interests. And uh, there have been, in the Michigan situation here anyway, I think two lower court decisions, uh, both have favored Enbridge over the state of Michigan. So I don't know if that's an indicator as to where this is going to go. Yeah, so, Bill, they have favored uh, Canada, basically, over the state of Michigan. Yeah. But it was to the point made in the treaty that this is not something the state should be wading into. They can bring their concerns, the state can bring their concerns to the federal government of the United States, and then if the federal government of the United States wants to do something, the right way to do it is between nations, not in the courts. And so, as you say, two lower courts have taken the position of Canada and Enbridge, they're joined together, and said, yeah, you're right, this is not a state issue. Uh, to, the, to the extent that Gretchen Whitmer has sort of dialed back on this now, I'm not saying she's admitted defeat, but she's not been pressing this agenda the same way. The Wisconsin thing is just a little different. It's not the state government doing it. It is a, a group of First Nations people trying to use the Wisconsin courts to make, uh, make their argument known. And we suspect that the Wisconsin courts will agree with the Michigan courts that this is not the right level. So again, Canada asserting this as part of its defense, uh, this is all a very consistent strategy. Well, it's going to work its way through the courts. Uh, Marvin, great to get your perspective. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to deal with uh, another crisis, and it is a crisis. And that, of course, is the uh, the athletes crisis, the addressing athlete abuse in Canadian sports. And there's a great piece in theconversation.com that addresses this and uh, talks about some of the motions and some of the uh, programs that are currently in place and, and some of the ideas to try to, to clear this up and to deal with some of the allegations that have been made. Uh, the author is McIntosh Ross. Uh, he is an assistant professor in kinesiology at Western University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, interesting piece, very timely piece, and, and well, you said it right in the first sentence, Canada sport is in crisis. Sport Canada and, and the federal minister uh, have, have addressed this. Um, they've made some moves on this. Are they making the right moves in addressing this? I think, no. Um, so I, I actually did reach out uh, to the minister's office for this piece, and basically what I was told uh was that the establishment of a safety uh, integrity commissioner was sufficient, or sport integrity commissioner, sorry, was sufficient to um, address all of these allegations of abuse that are coming, you know, almost on a daily, if not, you know, weekly basis um, through the Canadian sport system. And it, it's, it just, it felt 
uh, superficial. What really needs to happen, in my opinion, and what I say in the article, is that there needs to be some kind of third-party investigation that's truly independent. Because what a lot of people don't understand is how the funding structure for all this works. So the money is actually flowing into uh, the Sport Dispute Resolution uh, Centre of Canada. Uh, and then the, the commissioner uh, for sport integrity is under their umbrella. That's all coming from the government. So th this is an organization uh, that is getting funding from Sport Canada. And then we're expecting them to sufficiently uh, investigate all the abuse that's popped up under Sport Canada's watch. So that's uh, basically what they're asking them to do is bite the hand that feeds them. And how often does that happen? Well, that's that's the way I feel about it. You know, you want to think the best of people and believe that they, they can function independently even within an organization like that. But why take the risk? I mean, these are people's lives we're talking about uh, across not one sport, but many, many sports. Uh, Global Athlete has been working incredibly hard to, to give those athletes a voice and show that they don't think this is a, a sufficient answer um, to their claims of abuse and that there, there needs to be an independent investigation and that they don't feel confident that a government-led investigation like this will work. Well, and you've, you're not alone, as you mentioned in the piece. Uh, Athletes Can is, is uh, uh, a group that's been around for quite some time right now, and I, I think they're pretty much on the same page as you on this situation. Uh, not a bad move, maybe, but not the best move, and maybe a step in the right direction, but certainly not the solution to the problems. Yeah, Athletes Can is a great organization. Uh, they, they were one of the earliest um, kind of advocacy groups for elite athletes, um, and they, they happen to be from Canada, so they have a lot of experience in this realm and in their opinion it, it is a step in the right direction it is important to have internal mechanisms like this uh, but when something's happening at this scale obviously um, there needs to be more I mean when Ben Johnson tested positive for steroids uh, at the Olympics it was like the world was ending um, and there's a racial component to that too uh, I don't I don't believe that um, if, if that if Ben Johnson had been white that that would have been the same outcome um, and all of these coaches, for the most part, overwhelmingly are white Canadians. Um, so now that the, the tables are turned and we're seeing, you know, people in very privileged positions within Sport Canada and, and the various federations come under scrutiny, we're not seeing the same, you know, visceral response to protect people, you know, the same way that they wanted to protect this, you know, notion of sport uh, and ethical sport back in the 80s. Uh, which is really troubling. Like the, the athletes are suffering; that they're asking for help, and nobody wants to help them. Well, and maybe the best example of that, the more recent one, is is the Hockey Canada circumstance here with the sexual abuse allegations that went on, and and the the you know the proof that we found out now is that you know they basically tried to pay off the the complainant and and, sh and sweep this under the rug. And uh, I'm getting the sense from some of the stuff we're learning subsequent to that 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 seems to be the methodology that most of these organizations do. They don't want to be put in a bad light because it could affect, as it did with Hockey Canada, corporate funding and so many other things. Yeah, they're, they're not in a position to conduct their own investigations. They just can't. There's too many conflicts uh, within their organizations. Uh, and then they, you know, they're not going to communicate that up the chain to Sport Canada. It doesn't seem like, you know, Sport Canada actually said, you know, yes, we require everybody to have uh, third party investigations done um, and have a mechanism for that. But we have no way to follow up on that. 
that's a massive problem. And if that's the case with Sport Canada, then we really do need to take this beyond Sport Canada so we can get some independent viewpoints on what's going on, not just to provide, um, you know, immediate uh, solutions, maybe not solutions, but um, immediate um immediately address the concerns of athletes, but also to provide sweeping systemic change within, within our sports system. Um, because it is, there's no way you can look at this and think this is functioning properly. Well, and we've had evidence of this, haven't we, Professor? I mean, people that have been victimized uh, or others that we just recently found out about have said, well, there's no sense in me coming forward because, you know, I'm just, the system doesn't pay attention to me. Uh, They're playing defense, in other words. They're not listening to me. They're playing defense to make sure that the funding doesn't get cut off. I mean, the, the you know, the whole concept of this is to protect what you've got and, 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 you know, say, well, we can tweak the system and it looks like we're doing something, which has got to be frustrating for the athletes. Oh, I, I, absolutely. And, and, you know, they, there needs to be a judicial um, investigation and, and a judicial inquiry where, you know, they have the power to call um, witnesses and to compel people to participate um, so that we can really, you know, treat this with the seriousness that, that it deserves. This is widespread abuse within the Canadian sports system. And I feel like it's just getting pushed off to the side and, and, you know, treated like it's just a few instances here and there. It's not. It is absolutely prevalent across the sports system. Um, you know, any sport, you go talk to people. Um, there was a study at the University of Toronto that I mentioned in the article um, where they found rampant uh maltreatment of athletes across Canada Um, and and many of whom, um, you know, aren't going to get the kind of help they need through this system. Uh, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a sport integrity commissioner um, and there shouldn't be an office of of sport integrity. Sure, there should be, Um, but there has to be something else as well. It can't continue to just stay in house. We, you know, it's like Rob Kohler said from from Global Athlete. We don't do this with other other parts of Canadian society. We don't let it kind of exist in a bubble and police itself. And we've done that a lot with sports over over the years. The NHL famously has been largely allowed to police itself until recently, um, where you know very violent activities were just handled internally. Uh, but but that surely can't be the case in in the 21st century we have to do better well and it's widespread and as you say we you know we may be focusing on sexual harassment or sexual uh, violations uh, and, and those sorts of allegations as egregious as they are uh, but this this expands out into bullying and uh, a number of different things that have gone on uh, sometimes by coaches sometimes by players uh, and on and on it goes there are specific incidences of course that we could refer to here but the problem is, is the frustration is that they seem to still think that, okay, the system is fine. We just, you know, these are isolated. Yeah. That coach over there, the Graham Jameses, and the, that doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but it's happening an awful lot at different levels, all the way down to minor sports and, and, and children's sports. And uh, it's, first of all, you have to think of the psychological impact that's going to have on the athlete. Yeah, and often with children's sport, at the very least, we're able to go through the court system and have these things addressed. There seems to be some kind of hesitancy to to use the mechanisms that we already have in society to really clean this up. 
Um, you know, if you, I've just started a project on looking at abuse of children in Canadian sport. It's overwhelming, but a large number of those uh, coaches and staff members, um, you know, uh, summer camp folks who who perpetrate these acts do go through the court system. Um, whereas, you know, that's all that these elite athletes are asking for. This they're not asking for anything special or different. They're asking to be treated like every other Canadian in many respects. Um, so, you know, the, because they're they're athletes, they're actually being marginalized in a way that that you just wouldn't expect the way we normally put athletes on a pedestal and celebrate them and, and fet them. Um, you know, there's tremendous pressure on them. And then when they need help, it's like everybody disappears. And we keep circling back, I guess, because the hockey issue of Hockey Canada seems to be a front and foremost with most of us right now. Uh, and and an example of I, I think it really underscores exactly what the point you were making in, in your piece in the conversation is is Hockey Canada. I mean, you know, Brindamore seemed to be the sacrificial lamb. Okay, he can go, uh, but the board just reiterated that uh, you know the rest of the the, the team there yeah. uh, are fine. And you know, Andrew Skinner's the interim leader right now, and they just voiced support for Scott Smith and the executive team. Uh, you it, it, you know a fish stinks from the head, and and you know they're they're saying what 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 crisis? We're okay here now. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous what's going on with Hockey Canada. Um, it's a little bit of a, a different situation, uh, but it still comes down to accountability. Is anybody accountable for what happens within the organizations here across Canada? Um, and when you have multiple instances of Hockey Canada paying money out of the equity fund uh, to cover up allegations of sexual abuse or sexual assaults, um how does the board survive how how does smith survive it's it's just mind-boggling and it is this kind of exceptionalism that sports administrators in canada believe they have that they they play by a different rule book than everybody else including the athletes like this is there will be athletes through this hockey canada investigation uh who are going to uh you know feel like they don't have an administrative structure in place um, that truly supports them and that they can go to when, when um, they see something. Um, because, you know, these are the same people who covered it up before. Well, in the Hockey Canada example, I think shines true. I mean, you know, okay, we got rid of the CEO and yeah, the sexual allegations were investigating, you know, that, that the world junior teams and some others that have come up. But, they're, you know, they're glossing over the idea that they used, as you say, a substantial amount of money as hush money. Yeah. Uh, that's not what it was set, given to them for, but that's what they did. I, and and don't tell me that Brindamore was the only guy that knew about this. I mean, the whole board was, I'm sure, complicit in this, yet they skate away. Yep, it's, it's completely unacceptable. Um, there's really, you know, I, I can call it whatever. You know, it, it's the, you can call it a million things, but at the end of the the day it, it's just behavior that can't be tolerated and if, if that had happened um you know to to anybody else they they'd be out so um hockey can't be treated preferentially other sports organizations shouldn't either and, and we've seen people persist through the canadian sports system despite loads of allegations of bullying abuse 
against them. Um, and it's time that we have to we have to change that. We have to fundamentally step back and say we're not going to do it like this anymore. Um, and, and like Ann Peel has said to me before, she's also in the article. Um, she was one of the founding mm-hmm. chairs of Athlete Can. There's something kind of off about, you know, our own the podium mentality, uh, our win at all costs mentality uh, in sports. Um, and that, that that is really at the core of a lot of these problems. When winning is all that matters, uh, anything else can kind of be washed away. Uh, anything else can be justified uh, as long as you're, you're getting people on the podium. Uh, and we're seeing that's taking an incredible psychological and physical toll on the nation's athletes. Well, there are investigations ongoing. We've talked about the internal investigation and certainly uh, the, the one that was uh, uh, and is now being led by, uh, by Justice Thomas Cromwell. Uh, his report is not coming out until sometime in November. We can only hope at this stage that there's uh, going to be some positive action from that. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks again. People can go to theconversation.com and uh, and read the whole article. It's very fact-filled and and I think gives you a very good perspective on the on the, the crisis and the, and the challenges that they're dealing with. Uh, hopefully we can talk again soon down the road. Appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. That's uh, Professor McIntosh Ross, uh, Professor of uh, Kinesiology at Western University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.